Welcome back to Reverberate. I'm Chris Michael, and in this series, I'm exploring key moments in the history of a city and the music that soundtracked them. So, if you happen to grow up in the 1980s in North America, like me, you might remember Manuel Noriega. The North American imperialists are like piranha fish, he said this morning. They want to gobble up the Panama Canal. The Panamanian dictator was on the news all the time, portrayed as the archetypical evil dictator. Like the original Saddam or Gaddafi. A flamboyant and slightly weird-looking guy who'd committed the original sin of pissing off his former friends, the United States. What I remember were a display of fire and, and noise from, from our house. Our house was not very close to where the action was taking place, but you could see fire and light um, on the horizon. On December 20th, 1989, President George H.W. Bush ordered the U.S. invasion of Panama. Operation Just Cause saw 20,000 troops land in the capital city of this small South American country. So that night, when the noise woke us up in the middle of the night, my twin brother, first thing was to say, they're invading us. Enrique Jelensky was 24 at the time. He'd recently graduated as a lawyer, and before that he'd won a Fulbright scholarship to do a master's in the U.S., so he'd spent a year studying in Florida before coming back to Panama. Before heading to the States, though, Enrique had lived his whole life under a dictatorship. So everything that was wrong, I would also blame it on the dictatorship. So we had all these expectations that once the dictatorship was over, a new brave world was opening to us. Raised in a big family, growing up in Panama City was sometimes hectic. Six of my eight siblings are Cuban, and it's basically very Latino. In those times, very macho-orientated city. Still, he managed to find a bit of peace every now and then. Pop music was my window to a bigger world. It, I, I could be at home, surrounded by eight brothers and sisters, and yet I would have my corner of freedom. I would have my own space just by listening to, to pop music. As well as living under a dictatorship, Enrique remembers the constant threat posed by communism. Not so much its existence, but rather the possibility that you might be considered a follower. Everyone who voiced an alternative opinion to the way things were conducted would have been easily labeled as communist. So when the Berlin Wall fell the same year, 1989, the first thing that came to my mind was, at last, we would all be free to voice our opinions without the fear of being labeled communist. 
The U.S. had made a habit of invading countries they worried were at risk of adopting communism. You can hear the shots of the mortars they're firing are the North Vietnamese Army and the Allied Viet Cong. Meanwhile, in the jungle areas outside St. George's, American patrols continue to look for a handful of armed revolutionaries said to be capable of causing trouble. Simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. It means the betrayal of our past, the squandering of our freedom. But the decision to invade Panama was a bit personal. In the intelligence business, you often have to deal with some rather unpleasant people to get information that it's essential for you to get. If you restrict yourself to talking only to Boy Scouts or people who are readily confirmable in the Anglican Church, your governments would be singularly ill-informed about what was going on in critical parts of the world. Manuel Antonio Noriega was a dictator known for brandishing a machete during speeches. It seems more like a carnival than a revolution, but the feelings against Noriega are strong. When pro-democracy protests were organized, he often set anti-riot units, better known as his Dobermans, on demonstrators. The guy had a weird side. He wasn't shy about displaying his teddy bears dressed as paratroopers. And despite his image as a brute, Noriega was reportedly a big fan of the opera. And for many years, this man was an ally of the United States. Initially, uh, there's some reasons why the U.S. is is fairly cordial with, with Noriega. This is Dr. Jared Tracy. As a young college graduate, he'd hoped to follow in his grandfather's footsteps, so he enlisted in the Army. He'd always planned on becoming an officer, but a couple of twists and turns, and he ends up as a research historian at the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. He's supporting the U.S. effort to uh, support the Contras fighting the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. He's not friendly to leftists within his own country, and he's providing intelligence to the uh, U.S. Drug Enforcement uh, Administration. But there's also some things that he's doing uh, during this time frame that are working against U.S. interests. The Americans were under no illusion. Noriega was a problematic ally. So he is politically oppressive, uh, which becomes a source of embarrassment. He is uh, facilitating the uh, international uh, narcotics trafficking, and he's selling weapons to leftist guerrillas in El Salvador and sharing U.S. secrets with other countries. So uh, he is a friend on one hand, and then he's also, he, there's some problematic issues with him as well. Look, for a while, the U.S. put up with Noriega, even turning a blind eye to his actions. Everything was peachy when he was a cooperative informant for American drug and intelligence agencies. But the U.S. government didn't appreciate when he'd sell secrets to their political enemies. It wasn't great that they knew he had connections to notorious drug cartels either. American attempts to oust Noriega have so far ended in embarrassment. And despite claims of an opposition victory in the election, it seems his hold on power in Panama will be as strong as ever. In the summer of 1989, the Panama Defense Forces, the army, led by Noriega, rigged the country's general election. An election that the opposition party would otherwise have won. The U.S. wagged a finger, but didn't do much else. But by that winter, the U.S. finally had enough. And the, I guess the, the trigger event was the killing of a Marine First Lieutenant by the PDF on 15 December 1989. Uh, at that point, President, U.S. President George Bush gave the order to execute Blue Spoon, which was renamed Operation Just Cause, to remove Noriega, subdue the PDF, and protect American lives and property. 
and Just Cause begins in the early morning hours of 20 December 1989. The PDF put up a brief fight, but was no match for the U.S. military. Noriega vanished, and a city without a leader descended into chaos. Panamanians who'd lived in extreme poverty for years chose this moment to take what they could. So all the shops, including our family business, were raided by looters. And that was the scene for the first two days. So neighbors decided to, to block the streets with whatever they had at hand just to prevent the movement of people passing by with trolley carts. While residents weren't exactly thrilled to be invaded, many were happy to see order restored. So when they came into the neighborhoods, I would say the first reaction, even though it made me feel shameful about saying that, but the first reaction was relief and exhilaration because someone was putting some order in the chaos we were experiencing. So it turned out that Noriega had fled to, of all places, the Vatican Embassy. Here, in what's known as the Nunciature, he claimed sanctuary. Not long after, Enrique got a call from a friend, the Vatican Ambassador, or in Spanish, El Nuncio. They were expecting many phone calls from the United States and from other countries. He didn't speak English, so he wanted me to fill the phone calls and to... um, work as a translator for him. Just imagine, you're a young guy, it's two days before Christmas, you're preparing to spend the holidays with your family. And then you're dragged into one of your country's most historic moments. It was life-changing, but Enrique was not excited. My first reaction was, Noriega has stolen a Christmas from us. My family and friends, I did not give too much information. I was a bit ashamed of being seen as helping a dictator. Enrique was there to help El Nuncio, not Noriega. But there was no avoiding him. They gave me this room next to him, and for the first two, three days, I did not speak a word to him. For me, he was an icon of evil, so I decided I'm not going to speak to him. Eventually, Enrique had no choice. On the second or third night, we heard, at night, we heard a commotion. It was like eight o'clock. At night, we heard a big noise, and um, it was almost like a shake, like an earthquake. So I just walked out of my room, and I saw Noriega never slept with his door closed. He always kept the door ajar. Through the door, he beckoned to me, like, please come, come over here. So that was the first time I interacted with Noriega. So Noriega asked Enrique to investigate the noise. He was worried it was the Americans getting ready to strike. So Enrique popped his head out the window and discovered that the troops were simply building a helipad for army helicopters to land. Enrique took his time in getting this information back to Noriega. Just to make him feel a bit more afraid for longer. You know, I was 24, I was immature. But as days went by, you know, I had a bit of a guilt conscious, like, oh my God, I went to a Jesuit school and how how come I'm treating him like, like an object? So I just knock on the door and went in and say, how are you doing? And from that moment, almost like a bad Hollywood movie, this 24-year-old lawyer and 55-year-old dictator forged the most unlikely of bonds. He was very, very intelligent, very, very cultured, 
That's where we start engaging on a very existential level, almost on a daily basis at night. Enrique never doubted that Noriega should pay for his crimes. But as he got to know him, he saw another side to him. I felt compassion for him. I saw him as a frail human being and scared. On the building next door, there was a parking space just on the same level as his bedroom. So Americans took turns to make sure there was an American soldier posted 24-7 pointing at him across his window. But the Americans couldn't actually force Noriega to leave. His presence in the nunciature gave him diplomatic immunity, and for the Americans to invade the embassy would have meant declaring war on the Vatican. So they turned to other techniques to get Noriega to surrender. The U.S. had a big playbook for these non-combat tactics. The idea was that uh, it was a wartime-only capability, and it wasn't really until we got to the Korean War and the early Cold War time frame where we started to view psychological warfare more broadly as uh, something that could achieve multiple aims and not just fetching soldiers from enemy soldiers from across the line and demoralizing them. It could achieve more peaceful aims. It could be directed uh, at, at civilians. It could help with uh, cross-cultural communication and so on. Um, and so it was after the Korean War that w- the U.S. Army maintained psychological operations as a permanent capability in its, uh, in its arsenal. In the early 20th century, PSYOPs, or MISO tactics, involved things like dropping propaganda leaflets from planes. But as technology evolved, so did their strategies. And now, I mean, now it's, it's the sky's the limit, so we're doing SMS, you know, text messaging, we're doing uh, internet, social media, uh, web pages, we're doing, uh, working with our interagency partners to do messaging that way. But we still do, we still retain in the capability, the ability to uh, conduct psychological operations, or some, I'm sorry, MISO, with uh, loudspeakers and leaflets. It's still a valid form. It's just one of the many tools in the toolkit that, that they can employ to get their messages across. In Panama, the U.S. tried out one of their more imaginative ideas. They brought in loudspeakers. Each one of these two-man teams uh, has one loudspeaker system that's 250 watts. It's about 60 pounds. You carry it like a backpack, and uh, it has a range of about a quarter to a half a mile. In Panama, the Americans set up a couple of these huge loudspeakers in front of the embassy, turned it up to 11, and blasted it. I remember clearly that music was being played. I remember clearly that it was rock music. American diplomats were trying to get the embassy to hand over Noriega. And according to Jared, the music was a way of keeping these classified talks private. The priority, first and foremost, was to create a noise barrier uh, around the nunciature to prevent outsiders from being able to hear the contents of the negotiations. Enrique who was actually in the embassy, questions this version of events. That gentleman might have information that I I, I don't have or I didn't have at that moment. What I recollect is that the negotiations were held person to person through the gates of the embassy, through the iron gates, or by telephone, or by fax in those times. So the way interpreted the whole thing about the music was... That was a way of rallying up the troops 
and in a way also a sign of triumphalism to play music that was so alien to us. This isn't the only time people have questioned the U.S. Army's use of loudspeakers. For example, human rights researchers have accused officials of blasting the theme tune from Sesame Street, on a loop, at prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. Jared explains there's no written rule about the use of music as torture. Music has been expressly identified as a form of intercultural uh, communication, as a way to, you know, bridge the gap and provide a sense of, uh, of, of calm or nostalgia uh, among those who are uh, currently uh, held in those sort of uh, situations. So, what was this alien music anyway? A lot has been made about what the, the exact content of the music was played. From what I've been able to uh, determine is that there was no set plan in terms of exactly what bands, what songs were going to be played. I think it was a mixture of whatever they had on hand. They simply amplified what was being played on local music. It wasn't just, from what I can tell, it wasn't just heavy metal music. It was a mixture of current pop songs and, and everything. I'm going to read out a list of some of the songs that were blasted at Noriega. I haven't read this list in full before now. Eat My Shorts, Freedom Fighter, Hang em High, Hello We're Here, that's a good one. <laughs> Tears for Fears, Crying in the Chapel. You know, it's like, it's taking the piss. Don't Fear the Reaper, Don't Close Your Eyes. I mean, it's also kind of threatening. I fought the law and the law won. There's a lot of metal, Judgment Day, Iron Man. Now you're messing with an SOB, my Nazareth, who my dad played with. These are, these are quite pointed. One-way ticket. I mean, you're playing Panama at the Panamanian dictator in the Vatican Embassy. Yeah, the party's over, the race is on, the long arm of the law, the star-spangled banner, again, Hendrix. You know, you're making a point, like, nobody can fail to see this point. This means war. Wait for you, waiting for a friend. Again, you know, it's all sort of, like, tongue-in-cheek. Wanted Dinner Alive, alive. Bon Jovi. Wanted Man, War Pigs by Sabbath, Nowhere Man, and the ultimate musical troll, Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. I mean, I can only imagine what it was like in the embassy to actually hear this. First of all, loud music in Panama is not perceived necessarily offensive. We Panama, even though it's in Central America, has got a big of influence from the Caribbean. So playing loud music per se is not offensive. What could have been perceived as a bit offensive was the choice of rock music. Even though I do not recollect the songs, I knew it was a music that at that time was associated exclusively with Americans. That was a sign of arrogance more than playing loud music. That's how I interpret the whole event. Certainly, if the idea was to somehow blast Noriega out of hiding, it didn't work out that way. The loudspeakers were on the same side as the ambassador's bedroom. So it had much more of a big impact on the ambassador's sleeping patterns than it had on Noriega or me. For instance, we were on the other side of the building. If it ever was the case that those in charge of the loudspeaker teams were trying to use music as a form of torture, they technically succeeded. They just got the wrong guy. It did not have an impact on Noriega. It had an impact on the nuncio 
and I remember clearly the ambassador telling me one morning, if they don't stop this music, I will stop the negotiations or the talks with the Americans. So it was the ambassador's pressure on the Americans that stopped the music. On this part of the story, Enrique and Jared agree. There were complaints that were uh, directed up the military chain that uh, got up to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that got up to the President of the United States. You have diplomats, you have media, you have Vatican officials, you have many people kind of complaining to whoever they can, uh, contacting Congress uh, about this particular practice. So the President... uh, viewed it as embarrassing. So the decision made it down from the Joint Chiefs of Staff to stop the music. So the music stopped uh, on 29 December, just before, uh, roughly just before the New Year. El Nuncio was relieved. Finally, he could think clearly. And only then he could call Noriega into his office and start having conversations. And it turned out to be also negotiations for Noriega's departure. So I think it had the opposite effect, the music. I think the negotiations or the conversation with Noriega were delayed by the noise, to be honest. But what that didn't end was the troops' use of psychological operations. The most effective thing they did was simply to threaten Noriega with his own people. Panamanians, who'd suffered so cruelly under his dictatorship, wanted him gone. Protests had been organized near the Vatican embassy, and Noriega could literally hear inside how much they hated him. The psychological pressure Noriega, more than the music, was letting him know that the Americans were going to stop blocking the access to the embassy so the people of Panama could approach the embassy. And the people of Panama, if they want, they can come and destroy the iron gates and get you. For me, that was the key moment. Enrique, still living in the next room, noticed a change in Noriega's mood. On New Year's Eve, we were all sitting in a, in a long table, dining table, and it was Noriega, the ambassador. I was sitting in front of Noriega that night, and... His mood was totally somber, and everyone was having a laugh at the table, and he couldn't manage to be happy, and just the opposite. There was an empty glass, and with that, he extinguished um, the candle that was on the table. He knew his days were counted. Noriega was right. As he sought refuge in the Vatican Embassy desperately trying to find a country that would take him and his family, El Nuncio was negotiating with the Americans the best way to hand him over. By the 3rd of January, Enrique saw the writing on the wall. I mean, the, the atmosphere was charged. You know, the threats of people storming in, into the embassy, you know, you know what, I've reached my limit. You know what I mean? My intuition was right. That's the night he surrendered. As news of his departure spread through Panama City, an instant party hit the streets. Enrique remembers clearly how he felt, watching the dictator he'd come to know being taken away. (sighs) Mixed feelings. Number one, relief. Panama is going to find stability, will be able to reconstruct itself. That's the number one reaction. 
Number two, as a human being, I saw him as we all are, a pawn in the big chest of life. And in just over three hours' time, he'll appear in court to face an array of charges. They include racketeering and accepting millions of dollars in bribes from the notorious Medellin drugs cartel in Colombia. If convicted, he faces a sentence of up to 145 years in jail. On July 10th, 1992, a U.S. court sentenced Manuel Antonio Noriega to 40 years in prison. He spent the rest of his life in custody, first in the U.S., and then later under house arrest back in Panama. This brought to an end a bizarre episode in Panamanian history, but it's important to point out that the U.S. invasion wasn't just loudspeaker games. Officially, 514 Panamanians were killed, and some local groups say the real number is closer to 1,000. 23 U.S. military personnel also died. After American troops left, Guillermo Andara, who was robbed of the presidency in the election the year before, was sworn in. Enrique Jelensky moved to London, where he lived for 15 years. The first time ever I went to a, a gay pub, for example, it, it was like, wow, <laughs> I'm trespassing the boundaries. And so for me, the post-invasion years are years of expansion. For me, on my personal level, and also on, on the level of my country. Enrique has since moved back to the countryside in Panama, where he lives with his husband, John. On May 29th, 2017, two journalists contacted him. They wanted a reaction to the news. Manuel Noriega had died. I think it brought peace to him. He had spent lots of years in prison, not in good health, away from his family, and it brought peace to the country. There was always this sense lurking behind us that if Noriega re-engaged politics after coming out of prison, he could have become a destabilizing force in Panama. He rested, and the country rested as well. And as for those fateful days inside the embassy, there was one thing that never changed. How Enrique feels about American rock. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I respect it. I respect everyone's way of finding expression. And for some groups, it works good for them. But no, it doesn't inspire me. A decade after Noriega, another thuggish but convenient ally of the U.S. went rogue. And as the American leadership saw it, had to be dispatched. It was, of course, Saddam Hussein. And the consequences of that friendship of convenience were an order of magnitude worse than they ever were in Panama. The Americans seemed to think there was something to be inherently welcomed about their arrival in Iraq, perhaps confusing their military dominance with their cultural dominance. But while American music may still top the charts worldwide, I'll always think back to that undeniably hilarious, but also unsettling time when they blasted that music over loudspeakers at the embassy of the Pope, not as a message of cross-cultural tolerance and communication, but as a weapon.
Reverberate is created and presented by me, Chris Michael. The producer of this episode was Danielle Stevens. The executive producer is Peter Sale. And the lead producer for Guardian Podcasts is Max Sanderson. Original music and sound design is by Pascal Wise. And music rights clearance was by Tony Orkadesh of Torchlight Music. The development executive producers were Shanita Scotland and Catherine Godfrey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>